The Unreal Game Engine launched in 1998. It was a fun time. It was like, oh my god, we can build our own games and gaming maps. But those earlier in the gaming cycle thought there was a better alternative already on the market. The launch of Quake in 1996. Royal O'Brien, currently GM of Digital Media and Games at the Linux Foundation, was one of those. I didn't start writing Unreal Mods until probably 2001, 2002. Until then, I was writing Quake 1, Quake 2, Quake 3 mods uh, all over the place. Unreal Tournament, that wasn't the cool engine. Everybody was on the Quake engine. We were building mods left and right for the Quake engine. As a matter of fact, gosh, 98, I mean, you're talking, that's Quake 2 land because Quake 3 was coming out, I think it was 99. We started writing mods in Quake 1 and Quake 2. Writing mods in Quake 2 was really the way to go. So the key about Unreal Tournament was it didn't have a limited palette. It had better fidelity of color is what it was. But it wasn't as performant, but it had all of this potential. And it did things differently than the way we did it in Quake. In Quake, you had to create a sealed container. You had to build a box that was sealed because when you went to do the viz lighting on it, if anything escaped, it would draw rays. And if one of the rays got out, your level didn't compile. That's the way it worked. Unreal was different. It was a solid chunk and you carved out your level from it. From the Linux Foundation office in New York City, this is the Untold Stories of Open Source. Each week, we choose an open source project or a person behind a popular open source project to uncover its untold stories. If you work with open source, and you do whether you know it or not, you're in the right place. Stay with us. Before there was Quake, before there was Unreal, there was military service and a GED. He was able to get his Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer certification within a matter of weeks instead of a matter of months. This idea of not adhering to a formal education, the learning cycle of being self-taught and applying that to real-world experience, has been the core of his growth within the open-source community. Certificates can show that you understand it, but you've got to show how to apply it. The days of theoretical are nice. It just shows that you have the discipline for it and that you understand it. But today, you've got to be able to apply it because there are a lot more people that are entering the field. There is a much faster growth pace on technology itself. We're moving through stacks faster than we used to. You've got to be able to show that you can apply it even on last generation so that they know you have the capability of handling current or next generation. Royal's real tech career started with the American Culinary Federation. It wasn't that he was a foodie or anything. In fact, quite the opposite. At the time, he was working as a bench tech during the day and as a DJ at night. The ACF needed some help with their computers. He went in thinking it was just a quick temp job, but when they saw what he could do, they offered him a full-time job. He saw the offer as something much better than just being a bench tech. He was young, had a cool car, wasn't all that attached to what he was doing, so he made the jump. The Federation wasn't tech-savvy, but still, Royal got more than he bargained for when it came to being in a real-world work environment. I got to learn more about 
diversity in opinions, probably in that environment than anything else. To be quite honest, it was a very diverse environment. Everybody spoke a little bit differently. They didn't come from Florida. They came from all around the world. And you learned different context and etiquette. Because I was so young and they were much older, they were really good about correcting on how I communicated with people because I was just this obnoxious 20-year-old running around who knew what he was doing in computers without a doubt that was a DJ and didn't really care. The lessons learned at the ACF were much more than techniques of using spices or how to cook a specific dish. The lessons were life lessons, things that in retrospect, Royal still uses today. Just because you don't know it doesn't mean it's not possible. What it did was it reinforced one of my core beliefs, which is that it doesn't matter how much you don't think it can't happen or if it's too big or too unwieldy, you simply just have to work at it. There are a lot of people out there that are quick to say no, but it just means you haven't tried hard enough. After the Culinary Academy gig ended, Royal was out on his own. Unemployed, car broken down, going nowhere with nothing in sight. During this break in employment, he attended a job fair. While shuffling through a stack of index cards at the fair, he saw a listing for an outsourcing company. Turns out, they were doing tech support for Prudential. He wound up at Prudential in 1996 and during his tenure got his MCSE certificate after a 7,000-page, heads-down session to prepare for the exam. What usually takes several months of study took Royal seven days of focused cramming. He passed all eight exams at the end of the week. That was pretty much the tipping point. People started looking at him a little differently. He felt more respected and credible, like, okay, something's going on with this guy. But that wasn't the only change in his attitude. You know, and at the time, we're talking about making 10 bucks an hour versus making 45 bucks an hour. That's a big jump when you're in your 20s, okay? That's a massive jump. When IBM Services came in to buy out the support arm of Prudential and provide outsourcing services, Royal and his team saw it coming. So a handful of them said, well, what if? We knew that everybody wasn't really getting the money they wanted. And so what we did was we kind of put all of the support people and we got them all together and said, look, what we put this thing together, we put all of you under a contract. And then when they go to transfer you into IBM, we can say, hey, IBM, we already have everybody under contract once you work with us. And so we did that. I became the CEO. I remember when they went to do the shift, they said, well, we're ready to go. And they said, well, you have to deal with this guy over here. And so I sat down with the exec over at IBM and we went through it and we got the contract. It taught me very early business acumen of making sure that you prepare and being prepared for the opportunity because the opportunity will come and pass you by. But if you're not prepared for it ahead of time, you'll never achieve it. The new business became one of the fastest growing companies in Jacksonville at the time. It was like a big party. They'd have people over to the house and basically hang out together. It was essentially a bunch of 20-year-olds running a company making millions of dollars. The big thing that I did with that company at the same time was I took a lot of people who were in different positions, not just a Prudential. I actually did a smaller company support at the same time within that company. There were a handful of people I knew that were bench tech. Some of them would be getting high all the time and doing all kinds of stuff. And you knew they really weren't going to make it anywhere unless they found a path. What it allowed me to do is take some of these people and say, listen, you're going to come over here. If you want to get somewhere and you're serious about this, I'm going to put you on the bench and you're going to learn how to grow your way up 
through a company. And when you screw up, I'm going to knock you down, but I'm not going to kick you out. The only time you'll get kicked out is when you give up. I brought them in. I intentionally made it hard on them. I pushed them. But here's the thing. Those people that I brought in, there were about six or seven of them. Um, they run half the IT solutions that are in the tech triangle between Jacksonville, Atlanta, and Dallas. That taught me that there is a potential in anyone. You just have to find a way to harness it. And once you do, you can make a lifelong friend. But most importantly, you can make an impact on the lives of people that are far greater than what you could ever reach by yourself. As the outsourcing business was bringing in money, it allowed Royal to focus on another of his interests, voice over IP. One of his first patents was on VoIP. He was working on building SIP-type protocols and controlling network size. What was the collision between the two? Could it be patented? That was my first one, actually. And the plan was to basically build what we used to use with Skype at the time, a really old school voice, because I knew it was more than possible. It's just we had bad networks back then. They shattered packets all over the place. So that was probably the first time when I just struck out into the void, going after an idea and just keep kind of wailing away at it. This was to become a pattern throughout his career. Work somewhere for two or three years, figure out what was interesting, and then where do you go next? Yes, I was jumping every two to three years, but it wasn't because I didn't know what I was doing. I learned when you're having conversations with different people, those new conversations give a new value to you. When you take that ability and bring it to a new conversation, it has a new intrinsic value. So as a result, I knew that my path to growth was a matter of just changing my environment every couple of years. As you move through these processes, through these different conversations and environments, what you're doing is you're building a set of experiences that creates a map or a framework in your mind. That map expands as you collect more experiences. This leads to the idea that we have control over new environments based upon previous experiences. Do you think you have more control than you really do? Anybody who thinks they can control their path from start to finish has no idea how much it's out of their control. And the reality is that it's the conversation that you had that if you'd stayed in that night would have led to a different path. It's an action that you took that you could have easily changed your mind. Each one of these elements are what steered certain things that you were able to react against. And yeah, you can have a certain plan, but come to find out that the harder you try to hammer away at that plan, the longer it can take. But the more you simply expand yourself and let opportunities come to you that you can build upon, the quicker it comes. No matter what the problem is, if you don't think it's solvable, you just haven't tried hard enough, think outside of the box. Every time you go outside of that, you make that jump in two years, you should take a different track of thinking. You should approach things differently because they'll still be within your scope of understanding. But when you apply it differently, not only do people see you differently, but you start to see yourself differently. You start forming a wider picture. Don't take the common approach that you already do for how you do things in daily life. Try changing your approach when you do some of these things. You'll find out it'll evolve you a lot faster. With this internal understanding of how the world of opportunity works, the more chances you will see throughout your life. It gives you the ability to see things that other people can't, the ability to follow a path with intention, but not be locked into those intentions. 
in your mind, you have a framework of the things that are the basis of what you're made of. What are your morals? What are the things that you want to see happen in life that you want to make an impact on? Your experiences allow you to move left and right. When you find things that connect into your morals or the things that you want to change, you'll tend to move into those and then apply them. You don't move into the things that you don't want to be involved with. In your grand map of things, I don't think you have a clear map, but you have what you're made up of. And when those opportunities avail themselves to a level of interest, you'll move into them, even though they fit in your map of space. But I think they're seldom intentional. One of those paths of interest for Royal was audio and video technology. Looking back, he sees a natural progression from audio to video to video games. It's something he wanted to be a part of, to have an impact on those industries. Royal saw the company Real Audio making inroads into the space. At the time, it was considered cutting edge, that ability to present audio and video over low bandwidth. Royal knew what they were working on. The interesting thing is that I know they were trying to work on that, but nobody was really trying to work on where some of the fundamental pieces were with video. Here I am looking at video and I watch it at the time. There's a lot of low bandwidth and it would be really blocky and kind of looked like garbage. And then we were just moving into MPEG-4 from MPEG-2 because MPEG-2 had a high bandwidth required. I was following the ITU, giving comments, working within that group out of Paris. As I was working through it, I was looking at the models and how it was done. I'm going, you know what? There's a way to solve this. I don't have the mathematical background for it. I didn't have the background for it at the time. What it did was it forced me to learn calculus so I could read the formulas of what was going on and what they were doing for motion estimation and things like that. Well, this is really kind of an untouched area. People just like, oh, well, they're blocks. They're just garbage. And to me, there's no such thing as garbage data. I learned that really early. There's just data you just didn't know what to do with. And so when I took a look at that data, I was like, well, there's got to be a way for me to understand what's going on here. So I tore it apart. Come to find out they were just primitive data. Like when you turn the knobs all the way down, you at least need to have something that goes in that eight by eight square. It can't just be a solid block. It's got to be something. So they used to use one of the core 64 frequencies. I learned that it was really easy to determine what was there from a handful of logical steps. It was harmonic. So I wrote some assembly that would make a determination and say, hey, which one of the frequencies is this? And then it would say, what frequency existed before and after? And it would start building a graph of that, but it would do it post-process. And I was able to determine what was supposed to be there, what frequency was supposed to blend between two frames and apply that frequency on that eight by eight block. I could recreate the video of what was supposed to be there from that. And people just thought that was magic. Talking about it makes it sound easy, part of a logical process. But it took a lot of research and trial and error to get it to work. Royal got it down to six logical decisions in assembly, which he called disgustingly fast. He had created 30K of assembly that worked on any Intel-based processor. He was talking to the big companies at this point, National Semiconductor, Intel, Disney, Warner, MGM, Verizon. Everybody at the time was trying to build a set-top box. I was working with all the studios at the time. We're in a big U-shape, and I've got Disney, Warner, MGM, like all the big guys are in the room. We've got two screens set up. I have the Matrix on the left and right screen, and so we have them playing at the same time. 
the first one is the matrix playing at one megabit. So at the time, one megabit was the highest you really could get out of DSL connections. And so we had the matrix playing at one megabit using my technology. And then we had the DVD. They're walking between the two screens, looking at them. And they're not really sure. The sequence I used was the, if you remember the hallway, the lobby shootout with his bullets and explosions. So that's the sequence I used, which was a really tough sequence because there's a lot of fragments. You know, we get done and they're like, you know, what was that? I said, well, that was your DVD running at eight megabits. This is the same payload at one megabit. And they went, whoa, that means that streaming over the internet is now possible at full D1 quality. Royal continued to shop the technology around, thinking Blockbuster was a logical partner to really blow the technology up. They had the videos. They had the physical stores. They had what it took to own the industry at the time, but what they lacked was a vision of a streaming future. They couldn't imagine a future without brick-and-mortar stores. As you might have heard, there's only one Blockbuster store left in the world. In 2006, Royal took a step back and realized there were other technologies to align with. One of the most exciting was something called streaming games. But in that case, he was going to have to play against another giant in the gaming industry, GameStop, another brick-and-mortar behemoth. We'll be right back after the break. there's a lot of podcasts to choose from. Everybody and their mother has a show. We're trying to do something new here and appreciate you spending a little time to check us out. You are listening to one episode in a 10-part series on the untold stories of open source. If you haven't subscribed to the series, you're missing out on some pretty interesting stories from Brian Bellendorf, Sarah Chips, Priyanka Sharma, Nithya Ruff, Patrick Dubois, and Clyde Seepersad. Wherever you're listening, take a look at your screen. Right now. I'll wait. Now, click the subscribe button. That's all we need from you to keep us going. Thanks. Let's get back to today's story. Getting turned down by Blockbuster made Royal look to alternatives. When he looked at it, there were built-in issues. First, the games were huge, gigabits worth of data. It could take up an entire DVD. Second, bandwidth was something he had no control over. His intended audience was still running on DSL over their phone lines. With those insights, he decided to re-evolve his platform. Remember, we were at one megabit, two megabit. Sending a four or five gig game, that took a long time. That took hours. And so I decided, I said, you know what? I know how games work. I know programming works. And that when I have something, I don't need to load all 50 levels of a game because I can only have one level in memory and then all the other static pieces. I learned that from building mods in Quake and from building games in prior years. So I thought, why don't I build a streaming system that just sends the first few levels and then sends the rest of it while you're playing the game because the game's not reading it. It doesn't even care if it's there or not. I built a first generation of it before Steam, the streaming type platform. We started to get it off the ground and then the investors came back and they said, you know, people are still gonna wanna go to GameStop. 
people are still going to want to go to GameStop. (laughs) The brick-and-mortar mentality just wouldn't go away. That was pretty much it for Royal when it came to lack of control of his own business. At that point, I kind of said, you know what? Reliance on other people to understand your vision means that you need to have a certain amount of control so that if they don't understand it, you can continue to drive forward with it. He took control of his idea, broke away from his investors, and went off to develop his idea. The funny thing is, (laughs) I had a lot of people tell me, there's been a lot of companies who have tried to build this. Okay, and failed. And they go, there's hundreds of millions of teams at Microsoft and Sony and all these companies that have tried to build a streaming system. None of them succeeded. You, as a guy by yourself, there is no way in hell you will be able to build this. It's just not possible. I sat down for about two and a half years. I built the kernel driver, the user driver, the application, patented the whole thing, built it all up. And there I was with an actual system that could stream any piece of software on the planet with zero integration that was completely invisible with a whole new process that I invented. Long story short, (laughs) the technology is still in use by millions of gamers today, including Star Wars, the Old Republic. Royal has been in the gaming industry for years, building connections and relationships. He's seen the days when it took 16 hours to download a 40-gig game. When some of his friends went over to Amazon to work on Lumberyard, the Amazon 3D engine, he received a call from his friend Matt to say they were looking for people to join the team. Would he be interested? This was a big initiative for Amazon. They wanted to have a 3D engine that everybody could use. And of course, when you wanted to use it, if you were using cloud services, you could use AWS. Matt introduced him to the people running the project, and Royal went through the interview process. This person was looking for somebody that would just simply kind of do what they want, is what he was looking for. And I'm much more opinionated than than that. I'm there to move and shake things up and to get things done. And so they passed on me for that role because they're like, well, we're not sure if he has, you know, has earned trust. I wind up telling Matt and those, I'm like, yeah, they, they passed. He goes, no. And so he calls up Dan. Dan's like, yeah, I know who you are. I know exactly what the deal is. I run that division. He goes, we need you in here. He says, I will make a role for you. So they did. He knew that I could take a product and convey it in both technical and business terms. That's what he was looking for. Somebody who could speak from a position of authority. Royal came on board as a technical evangelist, worked his way through a technical artist role, then on to sales and marketing. All of this was pointing to a much larger global role as a community lead for open source projects at the Linux Foundation. Because Amazon was talking internally about open sourcing Lumberyard. Funny thing is, the Linux Foundation wasn't even on their radar. The Linux Foundation wasn't even a player in the cards. So the discussion was, how do we take this engine that we have that nobody's really adopting right now and get it out into open source for mass adoption? What do we do with this thing? There's a lot of money sunk into it. And so the answer was, let's open source it. I was a single-threaded owner for the whole thing when we made that decision to do open source. The problem is, there wasn't really a lot of open source inside of Amazon. What would happen was, 
I would have to have some pieces that are put together. I knew from what I'd done in my research, what needed to be put together in architecture. And so I talked with Chris Janicek and a few others over at the Linux Foundation. And this is when COVID started. It was the last trip I took. I went to the summit that got canceled up in Tahoe. And so I got a chance to talk with Jim and Chris and a few others, Wayne and Holly. And I thought, you know what? This is the right group of where to put it and to start working with them. And at that point, that's when I started working with the foundation to actually build where we were going and how we we're going to do this. I had to bridge between Amazon legal and Linux foundation legal. I had to work with the Amazon development team and teach them. This is how we have to move into open source practices. You have to move out of this closed environment, move into open source practices. I had to turn this massive ship and build it at the same time. Royal made the jump to the Linux foundation in 2019 thinking he was going to focus exclusively on Lumberyard, which was to become the Open3D engine. That's when Jim Zemlin, executive director of the foundation, came to him and said they were also in need of someone to lead the charge on games and digital media. That was a no-brainer for Royal. That's what his entire career has been about. Let's put the gaming engine component in perspective. Unreal has a massive 20-year head start. You've also got Unity and Godot in the ballgame. How is Open3D Engine supposed to compete with that? That's the biggest misconception because I'm not competing with Unity and I'm not competing with Unreal. That's the thing. They are commercial platforms that people will still use and still want because they want that level of support. The objective is actually to build this universal glue that anybody can build on. And if they want to stay on it, they have a perfectly good platform they can stay on, but I want it to be where they can build and create where they want. They can create on Unreal, they can create on Unity and migrate into Open3D, or they can build on Open3D and migrate out to Unreal or migrate out to Unity. The objective of open source isn't, let me capture the world in open source. The point of open source is sharing, is to bring technological advances through open sharing. Open source, you'll find out, has the core technologies that other companies can then build upon, build larger things that have different advancements, but that baseline is still there. And so it makes sense to have commercial products that can easily work with an open source product and build using that because those technologies will be able to fold into open source as they continue to advance them forward. So we're not competing. We're actually augmenting the market, building something that creators can spend time building where they want to create. And companies can distinguish themselves by the advancements of their technologies and features of what they're doing. In order to achieve what he's trying to accomplish, Royal also has to keep a close ear to the ground, listening to the feedback from the community. One of those feedback sources is a YouTube channel called Game From Scratch. When Game From Scratch speaks, 180,000 people listen. In December of 2021, Mike from Game From Scratch gave a blistering review of the first release of the Open3D engine. Blistering might be an understatement. Open3D is now open source, available on Linux and ready for prime time, if you hate life, that is. Ouch. How does Royal respond to that type of feedback? He was spot on. I mean, that's the reality. Honestly, that was one of the hardest things when I was over at Amazon. They were trying to really pitch and say, this thing's ready for production, ready for all of it. And I was getting a lot of heat because I was inside of Amazon. 
to try and get that message out. And I said, you cannot do that. Okay. You cannot, it's not ready. It's not going to be ready. So it was a relief when games from scratch came out in December and just brutalized it because it brought it back to reality of where it needed to be. And I was okay with that. Then when they did the marker, when they came out, you know, months later and said, Hey, this is going somewhere. There's something up here. It was a testament to what we had been talking about with the growth and velocity, because I needed to be able to show that kind of growth in the project. You can't just say, Hey, we've arrived and it's all built and ready to go. Companies and communities attach towards growth and velocity within an open source project. So he did me a favor by simply stating what had happened, that we were growing at a fast pace. And it was something that people needed to pay attention to. It wasn't perfect, but it was getting much, much better. By 2023, we might have a title that's working on an Xbox or a PlayStation for an open source engine. That's completely unheard of. That piece of information can drive a lot of other companies to say, oh, I need to actually get involved with this and put my hand on the steering wheel and get involved. And that also means the community starts taking it seriously, as well as the academic community. Royal doesn't want the Open3D engine to be siloed. Towards that end, he's putting together a 3D engine conference, inviting all the main players to work on the future of gaming engines. We have the O3D Con, which is the Open3D conference that we do in October. People think that that conference is just about the O3D engine, but it's not. That conference is working with commercial and open source projects that are in the 3D space. We plan on trying to have Unreal and Unity and Godot and some of the others. We'll have some pieces in there talking about Metaverse, having them at the conference where people are talking about 3D technologies and open source. One of the big pieces is getting people to understand that we've got this conference to have one really good conversation about 3D technologies and open source and growth. Our program today was created with help from the team at the Linux Foundation, including James McLeod, GitHub tech extraordinaire with the Finos Project, Chip Stewart, maestro of spreading the word, Melissa Schmidt, cool design and graphics, Noah Lehman, social media maven, and Jennifer Bly for her awesome voiceover talent. Music for the show is from Blue Dot Sessions. Our website, where you can listen to all of the episodes of the Untold Stories of Open Source, completely ungated and free, can be found on our GitHub project or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Mark Miller, back next week with another Untold Story of Open Source. Open Source.